Balance your trading strategy by adding futures. CME Group helps you manage risk and capture opportunities in all market environments. Capitalize on around-the-clock access to highly liquid global futures and options market across all major asset classes. Just visit your online broker and get started. Plug into valuable educational materials and trading tools and see what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash on the tape. iConnections is the world's largest capital introduction platform in the alternative investment industry. iConnections membership only platform brings together the asset management community, providing allocators and managers with the opportunity to connect both physically and virtually. With an impressive network of over 4,000 allocators and 900 managers, their community oversees an astounding $48 trillion and $16 trillion in assets, respectively. iConnections is also the driving force behind the alternative investment industry's most renowned in-person events. We invite you to join iConnections at their upcoming event, Salt iConnections in New York, taking place on May 20th through the 21st at the Glass House in New York City. This two-day event is packed with one-on-one cap intro meetings and content. To explore more about iConnections events and gain access to their members-only platform, visit iConnections.io. Welcome to the On The Tape podcast. Wishing you all a very happy Thanksgiving. Guy Adami, along with Danny Moses. Later on, Dan Nathan and I had a great conversation with Lizanne Saunders. She's the chief investment strategist at the acclaimed the venerable Charles Schwab. So stick around for that. We're going to talk about a lot of things. There are a lot of things this week. Sam Altman, NVIDIA earnings, rates going lower, crude oil cascading lower, Danny Moses. But before we start, you know how I like to get into these things. And last night, driving home, it was a rather long car ride home traffic. I heard the great Dave Mason, who's in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Danny, you might be familiar with him. And his big solo hit was a song called we just disagree. And that's the way I feel about the market right now. And I'm going to read you a lyric and curious as to your thoughts, Danny. So let's leave it alone because we can't see eye to eye. There ain't no good guy. There ain't no bad guy. There's only you and me, and we just disagree. And as I sit here watching the S&P seemingly go higher every day, there are no good guys here. There are no bad guys. It's just me and you, Danny, and I don't disagree with you. But I disagree with what's going on in the market. But you know what? I guess that's that old saying, we'll agree to disagree. Danny, how are Let's you? Let's leave it alone because we can't see eye to eye. You're the good guy. You're the guy. You're the guy. There ain't no good guys. No, listen. And there ain't no bad guys. Porter and Vinny said it last year. Like, you can pay attention to the S&P. We have to because it is the market. And it is obviously moved by seven names that we know about, really six at this point. It is what it is. But underneath the surface, I will say there's longs, great value longs that are in there, and there's great shorts. And I don't think with all the news flow that we've seen and just retailers reporting and everything, I don't think you would have thought that the S&P, if you just take out those kind of those six names, would be back to 4550-ish again or wherever we're hovering right now. And that's not good or bad. That's just me saying, I think, just take the data at face value, take what companies are telling you at face value. And I think we're getting more indications of the retailers that are doing well financially are carrying less inventory. So that means less sales going forward, right? We know that they're going to have huge markdowns. We're already seeing them into Black Friday, into the holiday season, which is fine. 
But again, I think owning the good business models that are proving out over time is a winner. I'll say, I don't short secular kind of plays. What do I mean by that? I didn't short Netflix ever because this, just from a streaming perspective, that was the new thing, right? It's a dangerous place to be. I don't short uh, AI chip companies just because the macro is so strong. That's a secular play to me. That being said, long online gaming stocks, because that's a secular play to the long side. So I think you got to be very careful to understand that, that, especially in this type of environment, growth is going to be scarce going forward. So if you can find a sector that has growth, or the flip side of that is not having growth, electric vehicles, which are probably in some type of decline here, wind and solar, things like that, there's ways to play those within. So it's our job to identify those themes and then within those themes, find longs and shorts. And so it's frustrating just overall trying to predict the S&P. But within that, I don't think it's as healthy guy as it appears at the 4550. Well, I, I agree with that. And you mentioned something and we can drill down a little bit, but the concentration of the names that we seemingly talk about daily on Fast Money, on Market Call, on any of the shows, it, with the hedge fund community, is at levels that I think we've probably never seen before. And there's that old adage, put all your eggs in one basket. Quite frankly, that's been a good basket to be in. But as we're sitting here today, now I just want to be clear, folks, today is Wednesday morning. Last night, so Tuesday evening, we had NVIDIA report. NVIDIA closed that day, I think, either side of $500 or so. The knee-jerk reaction that I saw initially was to take the stock higher. Subsequently, I think when they talked about some of the things happening in China, I saw the stock trade as low as 475. It settled in around 490. Today, again, today being Wednesday, the stock opened higher. I believe the stock opened around 503-ish. And then it spent the rest of the morning trading lower. What One thing I'll say here is, and that's why the market confuses me pretty much on a daily basis. You know, if you had told me NVIDIA will be down 3.5-4% off the back of their quarter, and then said, okay, guy, where's the S&P going to be on the back of that? I'd be like, easily down 50 handles. Obviously, that's not the case. So even when things play out the way you think they may, you get thrown a curveball. However, going back to my initial comment, the concentration of those stocks in a very finite community, when everybody's in the same trade, it's concerning to me. I don't know about you. It's great on the way up, but when everybody tries to get through that very small exit door, I don't think it's going to be nearly as pretty getting out. Thoughts? Listen, I think a lot of it has to do with market structure. And Goldman Sachs put out the report that you have basically the top um, 10 names are basically 70%, I think, of concentrated longs for hedge funds. Which and the reason a, that is, guys. Staggering, staggering number. And the reason that is, you can look at that as a positive or negative, I think it's risky, is because most of the hedge funds are sizable, 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 billion, they're levered four or five, six times. They don't have the ability to play in some of the smaller and mid-cap names, right? If they want to express a theme and from a safety perspective of being able to have liquidity, they in and out, it has to be in the large cap name. So I think we have to identify that part of what's occurred is market structure in general. And this is why I believe that it's it's been frustrating from a stock picker's perspective, but a sub 10 billion market cap name, it is a stock picker's market. There are plenty of winners and losers that are out there. Listen, if you had told people that owned NVIDIA last year that it would be at 482 today, post this quarter announcement, they would have taken it seven days a week, 365 days a year, right? But the question you're asking, Guy, is, and I think an important one is, who is the incremental buyer of these stocks? Continues At some point, 
when people realize it, yeah, you can do 18 billion and a quarter, 20 billion and a quarter in revenue. You can have five, six, seven dollars in earnings, eight dollars in earnings. At some point, you're going to lap that growth and you cannot continue. I'm sorry, the math just doesn't work. You're not going to have an infinite demand. So that's not here yet. So the proof is on, not the shorts, but the proof is on. Listen, I can still own this stock and feel okay about it. I can get out of it in two seconds if I need to get out of it if you're a large institution. But here we are again. We talked about this the last two weeks. We're on the backside of the year, the last six weeks versus the first six weeks. People came into 2023 very defensive. They, we had fits and starts of does growth lead, does defense lead, consumer staples, who's going to win, who's going to win. The chase is on here, guy. And if you're a hedge fund, you have basically a month left or however many trading days are left to earn your incentive fee, so to speak, and or protect your gains and or just take more risk. And I think that's where we are. And I think that the, the FOMO is here right now. I don't know. It could end guy next week. H historically, this holiday week has been an up week and vol has gotten killed. And that's what we've seen on both ends. To your point about volatility, we're talking about a VIX now that's either side of 13. So you, you've been, if you've been short volatility, you've been rewarded. And again, that's a dangerous game as well. One of my concerns about this amount of concentration in that community is that explains that number you just put out, that Goldman Sachs report, to a certain degree, explains some of the moves higher in these names. As we're sitting here, Apple's pushing towards an all-time high. Microsoft made an all-time high. NVIDIA made an all-time high earlier this week or late last week. Amazon, not so much, but there's probably still room there. Tesla's its own animal. But again, my concern is when you have that type of concentration, they won't get out in a staggered way. It's seemingly what will happen is there'll be some sort of event where they all try to get out at the same time. And now you think these are liquid names. They're liquid on the way up, but it's not so much. It's a whole different ballgame on the way down. So therein lies my concern there. And again, going back to Dave Mason, we can agree to disagree in terms of what it means. But I don't think, to your point about market structure, I think it tells a pretty dangerous tale, Danny. Yeah, it does. And listen, you're right. If you had told me that NVIDIA would be down today, I would certainly think that the S&P would be lower. But what else is going on? Oil is down again. And again, that's a tailwind for the consumer into holiday season. So you'll see consumer discretionary outperform on days like this. Rates are still muted here at the 445 level, I think, around guy. On the 10-year, we both know that can change on a dime. You've had things settle in with the yen just under or around 150, so that hasn't weakened further. Japanese 10-year yields were spiked near 1%. I think they're down back to 0.75%. So there's a calmness going on in the markets right now. And that's enough, in my opinion, to either reallocate into other sectors within the S&P. So today, I would say, is a healthy day. To your point, I, if you were bullish, today should make you feel even more empowered in the sense of you get a sell-off like that in NVIDIA with the name and it's getting reallocated. Tesla's down, obviously, today again also. So again, I really believe it's SEAL Team 6, not Magnificent 7 anymore. And I think We'll start to see that over the course of the first quarter. But the one thing, Guy, that I'm not going to get past is that the consumer is slowing, for sure. We see it in the economic data. We see it within the retailers. Some retailers do very well. They're just good companies that are capturing larger market share, and, and some are not. But for the most part, I think we all agree. And we battle this Fed funds, right? And so over the last couple of days, now they're pushing back out rate cuts. Not a lot, but slightly, right? Just a little bit. So at some point, you get to a point, Guy, where if the compound effect or the virtuous cycle of the market doing better, the wealth effect starts to accelerate again, you may be self-fulfilling that rate cuts get pushed out again and or the Fed could go again potentially in January. So we're gonna be fighting that battle obviously during the first half of next year. But right now, I think the proof is on from a macro perspective, the proof is on 
the shorts to show. It's a show me story for the shorts on the S&P at this moment. But again, look at single names. Don't focus on the overall market. I think we've known each other long enough now for me to be able to say, I know how you think, because in a perverse way, we think extraordinarily similar in terms of how we view things and the way we interpret things. Now, again, this is not necessarily for us to create a position bullish or bearish in Microsoft, but this Sam Altman news that came out, the OpenAI news, is interesting to me. Now, I understand that the board there, I think there were only four people, so you can talk about board structure and the importance of governance and those types of things. However, the abruptness with which he was fired, having just spoken on a panel, I think he was just in San Francisco as part of that President Xi delegation, I believe. And then overnight, seemingly something changed. I know the way your mind works. Does that, you're saying to yourself, what is, there's more to this story. What is going on? And I don't think Sam Altman, him being there, not being there, is going to change the trajectory of AI. But it speaks to something out there in terms of our willingness to believe key man, key person risk. What's your interpretation of that story? My, my interpretation, and we saw this with FTX, is that this effect of altruism is all bullshit for the most part. At the end of the day, if you're going to run a company and go to raise money to $30 billion, try to raise money to $90 billion, like they were just talking about with OpenAI, you can't be effective altruism, whatever that is, right? There's a time and place for that in the nonprofit of the world, but that was what was going on here. And I think that Sam Altman, I don't want to speak for him, and I'm the last guy to be talking about something like this in general, is view investors. And you have employees that hold stock. And that came out during this process of him being forced out that the entire company, literally 700 out of 770 employees were going to leave if Sam Alton were going to leave and go to Microsoft, et cetera. It just proves the point. So what did they do? They forced out the board that were effective altruists, again, whatever that is, and then brought in basically capitalists to a degree to reset the stage for the company. Whatever he was doing, these side projects on his own or whatever that it was, or this infighting that was going on, I, I don't know. Obviously not a part of it. But to me, Guy, it exposes a lot of the hypocrisy which is out there. And listen, there's a time and a place to give to charity and nonprofits and give your money away. But I think that was the battle here. And I think the FTX issue exposed it. I think this exacerbated it. And listen, if you're going to go after the king, you better kill the king. And they didn't. And the whole thing is really strange. And I think that people obviously see Sam Altman as the thought leader in AI. And there was a little bit of panic. But People didn't make a big deal out of it. But once Sam Altman's now been reinstated as we sit here today, now it's a big deal that he's come back and it's great. So again, it's going to play out. We're going to get more details here over time. But I think that's what it is. You can't have it both ways. And I think that so it's a for-profit company that was being run or controlled by non-for-profit kind of uh, leaders. And I think that's now changed. And I think now you're going to see a capital raise they're talking about at the $90 billion level. And Microsoft owns what? 49% of the company. So I think they were pulling the strings there as well. It appears that way because there was an interview that John Fort did with um, Satya Nadella. And I found the interview interesting. There didn't seem to be a concern on the Microsoft side of the equation as to the events or the reasons that were surrounding his, again, to use the word, abrupt dismissal from OpenAI. But as it turns out, the way this is playing out, and I do think there are more chapters left in this story all things seemingly are coming up roses for Microsoft in this equation. And good for Microsoft, by the way, which again, I will say, is one of the three most important companies in the world. My concern of Microsoft is not what they're doing at all. I mean, they if you think about your daily lives, Microsoft touches your life each and every day in terms of their products. My concern 
is the valuation that the market has tagged them with close to 30 times next year's earnings, which is a staggering number. But you know what? As Dan Nathan would say, have at it. The other thing that sort of came up this week, again, around the crypto world, this Binance stuff, Danny, is really fascinating. And I think what we're seeing is an industry, I don't want to say wrought with, but there's been some bad actors in the space. And I don't think it's an indictment on crypto or Bitcoin as much. Maybe it's an indictment on some of the characters that are running around. But then you start to see winners and losers start to emerge. So speak to me in terms of what your takeaway is there. Yeah, this has been ongoing for a while. CZ Binance has been under the microscope of U.S. regulators. The SEC issue with these companies is all one issue, and that is, are these securities or are they not? And that has been the issue. So that's one part. But the Department of Justice, obviously, Treasury and all these guys have been going after these companies. And it turns out, lo and behold, that Binance just admitted to wrongdoing. What did CZ admit that the company was doing? Money laundering to terrorists, literally masking U.S. citizens that were trading that showed them a way to mask their location so they could trade on his platform. But here's the thing, a $4.3 billion fine that's coming paid from the company, right? They have that much money. Like, where is that their token that's paying for it? I realize they have $65 billion in, quote, assets, right? And they have this BNB token, which is currently getting demolished as we sit here today. There's outflows leaving the exchange today. And he's paying a $50 million personal fine. Great. And he might go to prison. He might not for 18 months. I don't know. But again, this whole sector, and whether you believe in it or not, needs to be cleaned up. But this is the largest exchange. So who's going to benefit from it? Obviously, Coinbase benefited, I think, from the FTX demise. They're going to benefit from this. I'm not going to give you a recommendation on Coinbase. But again, probably not something I want to be short here because their issue is still the same issue that faces Binance, which is still the SEC issue. Are these securities or are they not? Bitcoin hangs in there, right? Still hanging in the $36,000 level. But as we sit here, I'm seeing articles that money is fleeing Binance right now. So I think what you're going to see is this, this BNB token that's worth X amount to the company is going to continue to get hammered here. And so I'm just curious where $4.3 billion just come. Yeah, here's $4.3 billion. Like, where is that really coming from? So if I was a customer at Binance, I would certainly be concern. And if this was a bank guy, or if this was something that was truly, it would have been shut down and taken over. But but they don't want to do that because they don't know what they would do with $65 billion in crypto assets. I'm not the right guy to speak about the industry, but I call like I see it. And that's just bananas to me. And so there's still a lot of stuff not resolved and we'll see what happens going forward. But I would expect Binance to continue to have outflows off of their platform for sure. They're paying a criminal fine, they Binance, $1.8 billion and forfeiting $2.5 billion. That's according to- What does that mean? What what does that mean? That's your point exactly. That's, by the way, to court filings that were unsealed earlier this week. And Binance also, they admitted to this. So this is not us talking out of school. This is in addition to what Danny just talked about. 1.1 million transactions. Okay, I understand things happen quickly. Worth more than- $898 million on their platform between customers in the United States and Iran. Now, there are certain things you just can't, by law, you're not allowed to do, yet they seemingly, again, where were the guardrails here? And it's interesting, again, not an indictment of the Bitcoin, not an indictment of, but it's clearly cast a long shadow on the industry on a whole. Yeah. And listen, the Crypto has survived. Uh, if I look at Ethereum and Bitcoin, just as the proxy, right, for the two names, two things that continue to get through this, which tells you it's in, quote, people that believe in in strong hands. I'm sure some retail 
clients have been lost along the way. And certainly some assets have been completely lost in general in it. But listen, if you're a bull in crypto and you see this happen, you're going to say prices are holding and we're getting bad actors out of the way. And eventually we get to a good place. And we're about to have the advent of the ETF market, right? Come on. So good for them. But again, just crazy. And I, I, I would ask the question, where is $4.3 billion coming from? Where, what is that? Are, for all we know, it's the token that they're going to have to use to sell and all that stuff. Again, I think that story is going to continue to play out. I think there's going to be a few more hiccups here along the way with Binance that are going to cause issues in the market for sure for crypto. The energy space, before we get to the league where they play for pay, under pressure for a myriad of different reasons. Again, I've been one person that's been bullish, not only the commodity, but the underlying equities. I thought when we saw what ExxonMobil did in terms of M&A, what Chevron subsequently did in the M&A space, to me, and then obviously throw on top of that the fact that Berkshire Hathaway owns, I think now, 25% of Occidental Petroleum. I'm connecting all those dots and saying the energy space is absolutely in play. It hasn't been recently. I think part of that, Danny, is this rotation out of energy into these high valuation growth stocks, and maybe it's justified, but the energy space is telling, again, cross currents, we just disagree, we being me and you, and then obviously the marketplace. I'm a little confused by it. I still think there's a supply-demand imbalance in terms of crude oil. I understand global demand might be weakening, but I think it's a supply story, and I think the equities are just cheap. When you wake up and look at these stocks under pressure the way they are and the sell-offs we've seen over the last month. Does that give you pause? Or does that say to yourself, you know what, the market is missing something here? If you're bullish on the market here in general, you believe in a soft landing or no landing. You just do because of these valuations in 2024, as we turn the calendar for S&P earnings, you have to. If you, are a, if you are in that camp, I don't know how you don't own energy here. Again, I don't know how much geopolitics is playing into the price of oil here. It's very hard to determine, right? We're going to hear more from OPEC and OPEC plus coming up in terms of production cuts potentially coming again. But I think we're at that level where oil, I think, is bottomed. Um, and I think it's bottomed for the underappreciation of the geopolitical risk, one, and two, again, on the economy in general. So I'd be buyers of these stocks, Guy. And yeah, they're going to underperform, certainly, when you have the excitement of technology here and all the other stuff and growth and that stuff occurring. So the answer is that I'm a buyer on weakness here of the quality energy companies that have tremendous balance sheets that are returning capital in the form of buybacks and dividends and or accretive acquisitions that can continue in the space and just know what you own within the space. And I think the large cap names are the way to play it. And I know that Vinny and Porter, we're going to have them on our off the tape segment on Monday. They talk about some energy names. So be sure to tune in on that for on the tape Monday edition. And so there's stuff to do there, be constructive, but guy in general, I would say that if you're a soft landing person, how do you ignore oil here? But on the long side, is my opinion. Yeah, Exxon has traded from 120 down to current levels 103. These are levels on the downside that we last saw over the summer that we held and bounced from. I'm with you on that. Again, the market continues to confound, but we draw our best every week, Danny. And you know what? Something you've been doing extraordinarily well with this year, as opposed to last year, is your selections in the National Football League, the league where they play to pay. We have reached, I believe it or not, week 12, and you come in with a robust 19 and 14 record. By the way, you had said weeks ago that you will come into this week with a 20 and 14 record. So you prognosticated your prognostications. So with that said, what do you got for us this week? 
Yeah. So I believe I was 13 and 11 at the time. And I said, at some point I will be 20 and 14. And I, hopefully this is going to be the point because it's a weird week. There's a lot of horrible games with the exception of Philadelphia hosting the Bills, which is a decent game. Jacksonville going into Houston, which you could argue is a decent game. There's just some crappy games that are out there. And who would have thought that the Giants Patriots would be the most uninteresting game on the board, right? Dallas is, has been the hottest team in football over the last few weeks. And I believe these weeks, these shortened weeks and holiday weeks, take advantage of a team psyche. Dallas, just having obviously blown out your Giants and then basically blowing out Carolina, come back home on a short week and they're facing Washington, which lost to your Giants last week. They have the worst defense basically in the NFL and Dallas has the hottest offense in the NFL. I, I just think Dallas is going to absolutely pound them. And the line opened at 11. It's 12 and a half. This is a Thanksgiving pick. I can give it because people should have this before the 430. So Take Dallas, lay the 12 and a half. It might be a 13 and a half by the time it closes. I think they're going to put up 35 to 45 points. And I think Washington's done for the season. Ron Rivera's done, the coach for Washington. I think Bill Belichick, you're going to start to hear his name. Potentially, he's the next coach of the commander coming in. I'm hearing that. But anyway, so Dallas, lay the points, guy. And hopefully we come back next week and I'm 20 and 14. So just... One pick this week, I think, which is weak NFL schedule. The Chargers are another team that I think Bill Belichick's been linked to. The Chargers continue to defy logic and underperform. They lose games in ways that I don't think most people could fathom, and that holds true for a number of teams in the league. And before we get to Lizanne Saunders, by the way, it's in a great conversation. Danny Moses, I want to wish you and your family a happy Thanksgiving. All of our viewers and listeners, obviously all the folks at Risk Reversal Media, Thank you for everything you've done. We have a lot to be thankful for, Danny. And we, although, again, the market confounds us, our gratitude does not. Yeah, and I don't think there's been a year that I'm going to be this thankful uh, for being with family and friends. And obviously, I consider you a close friend and the entire risk reversal family, but it's been a tumultuous year in the world. And I think we need to celebrate every moment that we have with, with each other and just really appreciate all, all the good times because we know the bad times are around us all the time. So love to everybody out there and have a safe and great holiday. Amen. When we come back, our conversation with Lizanne Saunders, Chief Investment Strategist at Charles Schwab. So stick around. With CME Group's micro-sized futures and options, you can access the same transparency and liquidity of the benchmark contracts with less upfront financial commitment. Diversify your portfolio and manage your exposure with the flexibility of CME Group micro contracts in crypto, metals, FX, energy, and equity indices. Learn more about what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash micros. iConnections is the world's largest capital introduction platform in the alternative investment industry iConnections membership only platform brings together the asset management community, providing allocators and managers with the opportunity to connect both physically and virtually. With an impressive network of over 4,000 allocators and 900 managers, their community oversees an astounding $48 trillion and $16 trillion in assets, respectively. iConnections is also the driving force behind the alternative investment industry's most renowned in person events. We invite you to join iConnections at their upcoming event, Salt iConnections in New York, taking place on May 20th through the 21st at the Glass House in New York City. This two-day event is packed with one-on-one cap intro meetings and content. 
to explore more about iConnections events and gain access to their members-only platform, visit iConnections.io. There is this Wall Street Mount Everest that you, you need to sort of climb and you get to the top. And when you get to the top, maybe you'll find Tenzing Norgay or Sir Edmund Hillary. But at the top of our industry for quite some time has been Lizanne Saunders. Lizanne, it is an absolute pleasure to have you join us here on the tape. Oh, thanks, guys. It's really nice to be here. I uh, I love your work collectively and individually. So thanks for bringing me into the conversation, so to speak. I thought Guy was going to mix some metaphors because sometimes Mount you do Everest like, and you do go Mount, to Mount Rushmore. Yeah, you were going to do that. I thought, but no, you climb, you climb, and you yeah. you're trying to find your your sensei, or you're trying to find your Sherpa, or you're trying to <laughs> find somebody yeah. that's up on the hill that knows right. all the answers. That's Lizanne. She knows all the answers. And she's also on the Mount Rushmore of Wall Street. No doubt. Strategist there. <laughs> but Lizanne, people love to hear the backstory. And you know, you've been at two shops for your entire career, which is remarkable if you think about it, because typically it's pretty nomadic business. But tell us how you got there. I know you're University of Delaware. Dan doesn't know this. That is quarterback university yeah. in the United States. Some of the Joe, Joe Flacco, Gannon, Rich Gannon. Fl I mean, Gannon, Flacco. See yeah. that? In fact, my, uh, my college boyfriend, who's still a very dear friend, but not my husband of 30 years, <laughs> he lost his starting spot as a senior, as the quarterback to Rich Gannon as either a freshman or sophomore. But, you know, if you're going to lose your starting spot to someone who goes on to become NFL MVP, mm -hmm. you know, that's okay. But uh, it was a fun time. That was the Tubby Raymond days at uh, exactly. University of Delaware. And Delaware, and you know tea. this, you would get voted for years, like the most fun university in the country. I mean, Delaware, and for you that care, Chris Christie met his wife, Mary Pat, at the University I of Delaware. Know, I know Chris. In fact, uh, Todd Christie, uh, Chris's uh, mm -hmm. younger brother, was in my, to use my daughter, 23-year-old daughter's terminology, my friend group. Um, Chris was sort of peripherally in it being two grades older, two years older, but I knew Mary Pat too. Uh, so yeah, and and our current president is a uh, Delaware alum too. And you guys have a fine lacrosse program, uh, the Blue Hens down there. So all right, so tell us, how did you go from being a blue hen to, to, to Wall Street? So I graduated in 86 with, um, officially the degree was international relations, but that didn't become a formal program until my senior year. The lead in to it was actually essentially a double major in political science and economics. Graduated in 86, to be perfectly honest, had absolutely no idea what I wanted to do other than I wanted to live and work in New York City. So we had a friend of a friend, family friend that was a headhunter specializing in grunts, uh, you know, entry level, do what they tell you to do. And I interviewed across the spectrum of industries. But this first interview I had at Zweig Avatar resonated with me. I'd done research in advance on the founders, including the late, great Marty Zweig, which, by the way, in 1986, doing research to the youngins out there was going to the library and going on a microfiche machine and literally turning the crank of newspaper articles and I got asked to come back for a second interview and one thing led to another and I said yes. And that's where I started in the business. And that was 13 years and went to graduate school at night and learned a tremendous amount about managing money on the avatar side of things, about everything from don't fight the Fed and put call ratio and sentiment analysis from Marty. Uh, but I was managing money in the context of his top-down work. And I really was more fascinated by the top-down work. I left to join U.S. Trust in 1999, and 10 months later, 
it was acquired by Schwab. So I immediately then, I guess, was adopted by the parent company. And that was coming up in 24 years ago. And I've been at, at Schwab since. It's interesting. Um, for young people, they don't realize. I mean, Charles Schwab is an actual person. I mean, I know it sounds crazy, but in a world where things are sort of named after Fugazi things, I mean, there is an actual Charles Schwab as there is a Marty Zweig. There is. And, and legends. Yeah. And Chuck is Chuck's in great health and he shoots below his age in golf. And <laughs> by, by the way, you know, what? one of the first books I read, I joined a hedge fund in 1997. It was my first job on the street and it was Winning on Wall Street by Marty Zweig. So when you just Mention the put call ratios, the desks that I was on every hour. Somebody was yelling out what the put call. I mean, it, he was like kind of a legendary. Like, oh, you, total you know, legend. Trade. Yeah. I mean, amazing for you uh, to be able and, to sit And with it's him. amazing now that we have things like YouTube. I always urge people. He was one of the original elves uh, on Wall Street Week with Louis Schrukeiser. And it's really fascinating to go back and watch Friday, October 16th, 1987. I mean, he just so nailed it. And here I am a year in the business. I know what's going on inside the firm because that's where I work. But we went from being, even on the institutional side, 90% invested in equities at the end of August that year, down to only 20% invested in equities the week leading into the crash. He nailed the crash. It happens and we start buying right away. So the naivete in me at 23 years old was, why is everybody freaking out? You just figure out in advance when a crash is coming, get out, and then the crash happens, you get back in. What's the big deal? <laughs> you, you think about the career risk associated, though, with going from that type of, you know, you have that type of a, uh, allocation to equities down to 20%, which doesn't sound like a big, it's a big deal. And if you're wrong- In the institutional world, that's a big deal. If yeah. you're wrong, you lose your job. So to have that that's kind right. of call, I mean, it's a legendary call. Well, you know what's interesting? That's a great point, Lizanne. And, and, you know, like I remember in 1997 and 1998, you think about the, the Asian debt crisis and we had long-term capital and all these things were going on. And I remember myself, the, the, the Russian debt crisis. And I remember sitting there as a 23 or 24-year-old person also thinking, what's the big deal? Isn't this why you guys get paid? the big bucks? Isn't this why your firms exist? And it is the guy's point. And this is a great segue because Guy and I have watched you for, for, for years. And, 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 you know, you come on, whether the market is rip roaring or whether they're in the throes, if it's a uh, markets in turmoil, you know, so, sort of day, and you always have a level of calm about you. Talk to us a little bit about like how that became, because you know, there's a lot of strategists out there who like to get big headlines. They like to make big proclamations. They like to call tops. They like to call bottoms. That is not your jam. Um, so that talk, is not my yeah. jam at all. Yeah. So talk to us a little bit about your experience, like growing up in that Wall Street where you literally grew up the, the first year there was a, a crash, one of the most famous crashes, and then navigating, you know, through a very volatile period over the last 25 years or so. Well, there is so much noise in our industry, especially these days with the advent of social media. And we're just bombarded with information in your right. There are strategists, analysts, pundits, whatever term you want to use, that, that really want to make a name for themselves, make bombastic calls, get the he or she just nailed it was right. And I just think that get in, get out, all in, all out, bombastic, trying to call market tops and bottoms. First of all, it's a fool's errand. And I think in part because at Schwab, our client base are essentially all individual investors. 
It's not institutions. And this is their money. <laughs> and I, what what I think I see my role as beyond the obvious of just trying to interpret what's going on in the market and the economy and connect the dots is to try to be a voice of calm and get investors to understand that investing is and should be a disciplined process over time, not ever about any moment in time. And I think helping where we can to make sure that the gap between an investor's or collective group of investors, almost a trillion in our case, that there's a narrower gap between their financial and emotional risk tolerance. And more often than not, investors have a financial risk tolerance. It's what they put on paper, literally or figuratively. They sit down with an advisor, time horizon, past experience, but then they find that their emotional risk tolerance has you know, no resemblance to their financial risk tolerance. So just understanding who our client base is and and really what messages matter and the what messages that matter are not about moments in time. I, I can't time the market. Nobody can consistently no, well. Absolutely. And you mentioned something as we started, what you learned from Marty's Wagon. One of the things you said, don't fight the Fed. Then you went on, put call ratio. But it's interesting. David Tepper used to come on years ago to CNBC and, and obviously a brilliant man, brilliant investor, but he would make it so awkwardly simple in terms of, you know, the Fed's adding liquidity, the Fed keeps rates low, don't fight the Fed, be long equities. And that became infuriating because of its simplicity, but, but it was correct. If that's true, when the Fed is lowering rates, money is easy, and if by being bearish, you're fighting the Fed, the same should be true that if you're bullish when the Fed is raising interest rates to the capacity of the level they have over the last two years, I guess now, being bullish is fighting the Fed. Yet here we are within 300 or so S&P points of an all-time high. So that really hasn't held up. Or maybe it hasn't so much that the market hasn't been ripping to the upside, but you know, it's done a lot better than I thought it would under these circumstances. It, it has. But if you go beyond the, the small handful of large cap names, the so-called Magnificent Seven, and you're not just look at performance of equal weight or performance of S&P 493, or you look at what bank stocks have done or what small caps have done, notwithstanding the last couple of weeks. I think the message in terms of where performance has been, where it hasn't been, is more consistent with where we are in the monetary cycle, the yield curve. It's just had this incredible bias to a, a few names. And it's just one example of what has made this cycle, this economic cycle, this market cycle, the whole pandemic thing, so different from, from any other. And whoever said, you know, it's different this time, those are dangerous words. I don't know if they're dangerous words. It's always different this time. But the cross currents this year have been just extraordinary. So I think there are times where it is somewhat simplistic, tied in with Marty's, you know, creation of that phrase of don't fight the Fed. And I think under the surface of those seven or eight names, it is easier to connect the dots between what's going on. The fact that the zombie companies, the non-profitable companies, the companies not self-funding, they have high interest costs and very low interest coverage. And you look at it at the factor level of what's worked and what hasn't. I think those dots are a little bit more connected. It's a great answer. So what you're speaking of is obviously below the surface, there's been an extraordinary amount of damage that's been done, which is consistent with not fighting the Fed. I'm with you 100%. So I guess my next question is this, is the fact that those seven to 10 names that they've become their own asset class effectively, is that a, I don't want to say good thing or bad thing, but is there an inherent danger associated with that? First of all, you know, cap-weighted indexes, whether it's the S&P, whether the, it's the NASDAQ, they're often 
driven performance-wise by, you know, a smaller subset of large cap names. That's just the nature of cap-weighted indexes. The problem comes when the rest of whatever index it is, is dramatically underperforming. And that's certainly what was happening in early June of this year, where you had more than 100% of the S&P's performance accounted for by the Magnificent Seven, but it was only about 15% of the overall S&P was outperforming the index itself over the prior three-month period, over the prior six-month period. So it's sort of the risk becomes elevated when it's an extreme in both directions. Um, What is interesting, though, about those names, you asked, are they an index in and of themselves? Are they a sector in and of themselves? That's one area you can point to to maybe explain why those stocks have done some so well, but have a fundamental thing to point to. And, And we did this exercise in a report uh, not all that long ago, and kind of borrowed the idea from Jason Trenert, my friend. I know you guys know him, and Strategus, which is looking at the Magnificent Seven as if they were their own sector. First of all, it would be the largest sector by far. It'd be 30% of the S&P. But interestingly, where it really shines is interest coverage, very low interest expense, very high interest coverage. So if you wanted to point to a reason, but here's the broader story with regard to that group of names, whether it's seven or eight or top five or top 10, is it really has shaken up what we think of definitionally as defensive stocks. And it's happened really at three different times. If you go back to the early part of the pandemic, the lockdown phase, those types of stocks represented that era's defensive stocks. This is where you have to be careful with labels because when people hear the word defensive, they automatically think, oh, it's consumer staples, it's utilities. Defensive is a concept. It's not a predetermined list of companies. And the reason why they were defensive at that time is those companies represented the only ecosystems in which we were living when we were locked out of pretty much everything else. So they became the defensive stocks. Fast forward to this year, the outperformance first kicked into gear in conjunction with the March mini banking crisis. That's because of what they represented. They represented that stability. They weren't beholden to the financial system or the traditional banks. So they became defensive in a different way, highly liquid. And then more recently in the surge in yields, when everybody was worried about companies and debt coverage, they became defensive because they had, they were self-funding companies. They had an earnings profile. So I think you, you there are fundamental things you can point to, but it was also the case last year that those stocks were the drag on performance. So, you know, memories are short. We have to remember that they can be both the, the driver on the upside and the driver on the downside. Be careful of trying to time the inflection point there. Right. And, and you know, it's interesting and, and that's a great point. But, you know, when you think about just what happened over the last few days with, with OpenAI, right, this is a company that Microsoft invested $10 billion in January at like a $29 billion value. This company last raised capital at like 86 billion, maybe 90 billion or something. This is 10, 11 months later. And you think about just the knock on effects of just kind of how all of these major platform companies, these large mega cap tech companies have been jockeying in and around this this AI space and some of the beneficiaries. When you think about Microsoft up 60% of the year, Alphabet up 55% of the year, Amazon up 70% of the year. So we're just going through these mag seven names and you get it, right? Like, so NVIDIA is up 230 Thirty percent on the year, you know. Tesla, I believe, a, a large part of its ninety percent gain on the year is excitement in and around AI and some of the stuff that they're doing there. And then I think, okay, thirty percent of the S and P five hundred are these names, and just do the math. Like the rest of the S and P is is trading very poorly for the most part, right? If you if you just think about it that way. 
And then if I think about, you know, 2024. Well, actually, not so much. So here's here's one of the things that I think people conflate. And I, and I heard this twice in the last week where a comment was made, you know, the Magnificent Seven, the seven best performers in the S&P. And I thought, no, they're the seven largest stocks in the S&P. They're not the seven best performers. At the point I looked at it, you had to go down to the 35th ranking in order to encompass all seven of the stocks. Now, that still puts them pretty high up on the list, but they're not the only stocks that are performing. But you're right. There's clearly been the AI backdrop to not just those stocks, but what has done well and what has Yeah. Done. And I guess my point is, is let's call it $11 trillion in market cap of a $33 trillion index, right? Where a lot of the performance though in, in, the, in the market cap weighted is coming from those names, right? And so my point is, if I think about 2024 estimates, consensus estimates for or S&P earnings, 11, 12% or so, I say to myself, the AI stuff, and this goes back to what I started this comment about, you know what I mean? It better work out in 2024, right? Because I think there's a lot of enthusiasm that is associated with that grouping of stocks and where S&P consensus earnings are, because they haven't come down that much, right? And we've seen- Well, here's why I think they haven't come down. It's not that there's actually a lot of enthusiasm about a huge inflection from, you know, barely any earnings growth this year to up 11%. I think this is to some degree a vestige of the early part of the pandemic, when, as we all remember, a record percentage of companies didn't just guide down, they withdrew guidance altogether. They just said, we, we have no clue. There's no way we can. I think a lot of companies that would otherwise have been providing more precise guidance, like was the case pre-pandemic, have frankly almost taken the environment as an excuse to move away from that quarter to quarter to the sense kind of guidance, because that's not how businesses are run. The point is that I think what analysts are doing is they're being nearer term adjusting estimates. So third quarter, we're in reporting season. Yes, better than expected results at the end of the day, which is basically where we are right now. 1% expected a month ago or six weeks ago to the 6% or so that we're likely to get. Yet at the same time, big move down in estimates for the fourth quarter. That was where analysts made their adjustment. Very, very marginal change to next year. Not because they have some secret knowledge of where the surge is going to come from. They're just not being provided the kind of information to give them confidence to adjust more than one quarter out. So I think it's just a different game. And so I think next year's numbers are not based on reality. And that's not the same thing as saying, oh, they're stupidly high and they're they're going to have to come down. They're just not based on anything terribly concrete. So I, I think that's one of the things that's different about this environment. Yeah, no, and and, and I, I get that too. I guess the, the issue here would be valuation, right? And so if these companies don't have a lot of visibility right now and, and analysts are not able to take a chop on 2024, you just mentioned, you know, how Q4 guidance, you know, has basically been ratcheting lower. That fundamentally makes these stocks more expensive, right? As we get closer towards the highs, and so I just wonder, it seems the consensus right now is for an economic soft landing, right? Which means that rates are going to go lower. But what if we go into a stagflationary environment? What if rates don't come down? What if growth does come in, right? Stocks are trading, you know, that 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 group of stocks, you know, are, are trading at levels that we haven't seen for most of them in a very long time. Apple, Microsoft, that's $6 trillion in market cap right there. 
So I, I guess I just wonder if, if the markets are this kind of discounting mechanism, what are they discounting right now? They don't seem to be discounting much at all. You know, clearly, if you look at Fed Funds futures positioning, yeah, the market is is uh, pricing in, discounting, whatever you, word you want to use, a Fed that has pivoted to rate cuts uh, in the first half of next year. Frankly, um, what we know now, based on what we know now, that's just not realistic. In fact, it's almost a be careful what you what you wish for if you think or want or think the best scenario is a Fed that is starting to cut in short order because unless the Fed brings the Fed put back and just says, you know what, we're going to start to cut even without inflation coming back down to or near their target with the labor market having loosened a bit, but certainly not falling apart and with economic growth hanging in there, this idea that not that we're extrapolating the current set of circumstances, but I just don't see a scenario, even though, yes, if inflation continues to come down, not doing anything with rates, staying in pause mode means real rates are going up. But I just don't see how we can be convinced that the Fed will go from the most aggressive tightening cycle in 40 years, not into pause mode, that's perfectly justified, but to pivot to actual rate cuts absent more deterioration, particularly in the labor market. I think that's, to me, an interesting thing to think about as we go into 2024 is I think the, obviously the Fed's reaction function has been driven by inflation as they were hiking. I actually think what's going to drive the timing of the start of rate cuts will be because their other mandate is more clearly in the spotlight with the labor market. But back to the specific question on valuations, lots of comments about valuation. It's sort of in the eye of the beholder. You can look at any number of valuation metrics and, and tell slightly different stories, whether it's equity risk premiums or Tobin's Q or even PE ratios. Is it trailing PE? Is it forward PE? Is it normalized PE? Is it Schiller's PE? You know, the rule of 20, it's it, almost always you can find a valuation metric that at least somewhat supports your uh, view, but inflation is a big driver. That's one very closely tied relationship is between valuations and inflation. And the sweet spot is in that kind of one to 2% range. Beyond that, that the market on average is traded uh, lower than that. But as we all learned, certainly anyone around in the late 90s, is the market can get expensive and then more expensive and then really expensive and then ridiculously expensive until it just isn't anymore. And that's why I always say we think of valuation as sort of this quantifiable metric. And it is quantifiable. If we're just talking about a simple PE, you know what the P is, you know what the E is, particularly if trailing, you know what the estimate is on a forward basis. But it's really a, a sentiment indicator or an indicator of sentiment. And I always say it, you absolutely have to look at valuations, look at history, relationship to the backdrop of interest rates and inflation. But man, never use it as a market timing uh, tool. It's a terrible market uh, timing tool. So yeah, I think the, there are some seriously rich valuations, but there's also the view that they could grow into those valuations. And if inflation comes down, the backdrop is improved. But that's absolutely a risk for these stocks is their outsized valuations. So Lizanne, it was around this time in 2021 that the Federal Reserve indicated that they were going to reverse course. Therefore, it makes sense that for the last 18 months or so, we've seen a deterioration in leading economic indicators. I mean, the, that math, that timeline makes sense to me. What doesn't necessarily make sense is the resilience, I guess, 
of the underlying economy. And maybe this, the lag factor, it just takes longer to kick in given all the money that's sloshing around, but figure that one out for me. What has made this cycle so unique is the roll through nature of it. So I've, I've been using the term rolling recession or rolling sectoral recessions within the economy. And by sectoral, I'm not talking about stock market sectors, but sectors within the economy to a greater degree than anything we have seen in the past. And that's just the nature of the pandemic, because back in the stimulus era, when for the most part, we were all still in some semblance of lockdown mode, that massive amount of stimulus was funneled into the good side of the economy. That's also where the inflation problem began on the good side of inflation metric exacerbated, of course, by supply chain. But since that point, we've gone into recessions for manufacturing, housing, housing-related, a lot of consumer-oriented goods that were big beneficiaries of the lockdown phase. We've ended the inflation problem on the good side. We've gone into disinflation, if not outright deflation. We just had the later surge in the services side. Services is a larger employer, helping to explain why the labor market stayed resilient. Services components of inflation are inherently stickier in nature. So we've had that that offset on the economic side of things too. And in in a case of a metric like the LEI, the LEI has more of a manufacturing bias to it. Not because the conference board is clueless and doesn't understand the economy. Manufacturing does tend to lead. It's just what the concentration of strength and then weakness was so different in manufacturing and services, and the timing was so disconnected just because of the nature of the pandemic. So I still think we have hits yet to come. Um, and I think the labor market will get hit and services will get hit. The question is, will we have already taken enough of a hit and we'll start to see resilience or stability or even recovery in those segments of the economy that already had their recession? So to me, that's best case scenario, sort of a continued roll through as opposed to soft landing. The dual mandate of the Federal Reserve, I get it. And they've tried to combat the inflation. By the way, the inflation that they begged for years, but that's for another conversation. But the flip side of that coin is employment. And that flip side is going to get triggered, I think, relatively quickly, in my opinion, faster than I think the market understands. I don't think it's going to be this linear stair step higher from 3.5 to 3.6 to 3. It's going to be three, five, three, six, three, nine, four, three. And the next thing you know, I think we're in the high fours. And I guess my question to you is what's going to make, is there a number that makes them blink? Because I don't think the Fed put is in the S&P. I think the Fed put is in one of two places, the credit environment, which seemingly is fine, and or the unemployment rate somewhere north of 4.7%. Thoughts on I that? I think you're I think you're absolutely right and that's another way of of saying what I said earlier about their other mandate is probably going to be a driver but specific to any coming turmoil in the credit markets or in the shadow banking system or something related to commercial real estate and a, a pseudo re-eruption of what happened in the the March period of time. I think that might be a Fed put but probably via their macroprudential tools akin to what they stepped in and did in the immediate aftermath of SVB. It came in and they you know, started the bank term funding facility. They didn't touch what they were doing on the rate side or really on the QT side. So that's how I think they would aim to tackle sort of financial system plumbing issues. Um, in terms of, of what the trigger might be on 
the labor market side, that's sort of an interesting uh, question. I don't, I don't know really whether it's the unemployment rate. You know, they continually cite job openings relative to the number of unemployed. I, I don't personally like that metric. I think Jolt's job openings is a poorly calculated number that isn't about reality, not to mention the fact that it lags by a month. And they're already keying policy off of inherently lagging indicators. It's in things like initial unemployment claims, which are still somewhat well-behaved, but continuing claims aren't. And that's telling you that it takes longer. You've got payrolls, which are hanging in there, but they've weakened what the household survey is saying, which tends to be a better tell at inflection points than so dramatically revised payroll data. So I don't know if they're, I think it's going to be a collection of things that becomes very clear that enough deterioration has happened in the labor market. That's what they need to target with lower rates. Yeah. So, and, and Liz, and you know, it, it's funny, like, so we could have used that expression, careful what you wish for on, on many occasions throughout this conversation right now. And I go back to, let's call it late 99, that rate hiking cycle. And I think it was about six or seven months and, and the Fed started aggressively cutting interest rates, right? And they went all the way down. The Fed funds went down to 1%. And then they started aggressively hiking once they realized that there was a real estate bubble that was forming. This was in 04, went from 1% to five and a quarter, I think at some point in 06. And, and they paused there for maybe close to a year, maybe a little longer. And then obviously rates went to zero during the financial crisis. Fed Chair Powell got into office. He started raising rates almost immediately, right? That kind of 25 basis point autopilot sort of thing. And I get it, COVID was a black swan, but then rates went back to zero. This is easily the most aggressive rate hiking cycle that any of us have ever seen. And so when I add back, if I overlay that chart of Fed funds and I do the S&P 500, it got cut in half those first two times, right? When the Fed started lowering interest rates on the other side of the aggressive rate hike, we sold off 35%, all the monetary, all the fiscal, we get it, we rallied back. So I wonder as we went from zero to five and a half percent, you know what I mean? If they have to start cutting for all the things that we just talked about, it, it's not going to be a pretty picture for risk assets. It, it's just my guess. Like, does that make sense? To well, you? so I, I think negative, at least in the short term, that's why I say if somebody came to me and said, okay, there's going to be an officially declared recession, NBER at some point in this cycle, however you define that, is going to say recession. Okay, Lizanne, you pick. It starts in the fourth quarter of 23 or starts in the fourth quarter of 24. I'd say, give me fourth quarter of 23 any day, all day, relative to fourth quarter 24, because I think sooner rather than later is better from the perspective of probably the severity of the downturn, the the give that provides to the Fed of saying, okay, now we can actually shift policy, not just from hiking to pause, but actually to pivoting to, uh, to rate cuts. So I think weakness sooner rather than later is actually a better backdrop both for the economy and the market. I think pushing it further out, that's another be careful what you wish for. But I do think the Fed put in the way we understood it is essentially dead. One of the things I was at the Economic Club of New York luncheon at which Powell spoke famously at the end of 2018. And the press there focused mostly on his backpedaling relative to what he had said in September of 2018, which caused the, the riot in the stock market. But I found what he, one of the things he said that was more compelling was you have to understand that we, as the Fed, need to differentiate between financial market volatility and financial system instability. 
that they're not one and the same and that the Fed's job is not to step in simply because of financial market weakness or volatility unless it risks the stability of the broader financial system. So that is how I think the Fed put is dead. The other way I think about it is I think not just the Fed, I think probably most central banks look back at the ZERP, NERP era and say, we can't go there again. There, there were way more negative consequences associated with that than positive consequences. So even you know at the point the Fed moves into easing mode, they will. That's what happens in cycles. I think the desire to ramp them back down to anything resembling zero, I, I, I'd like to think that that doesn't exist in my working lifetime again. I'm not looking to play stock market on individual stocks, but I think there are a couple sectors that sort of piqued your curiosity, energy being one of them that's been under considerable pressure now over the last month and a half. Personally, I view, I view that as a mistake in terms of the selling we've seen. Maybe it's some sort of an allocation out of energy into these sort of high valuation, high growth names. But current valuations, though, in the energy space, I mean, that story is not going away anytime soon. And I'm hard pressed to believe that Exxon and Chevron independently put forth the acquisitions they're going to make, thinking that somehow the energy sector is not going to be around in the next couple of years. There's a lot of runway left in energy. What are your thoughts there? I would say in general, yes. Now, it, it has become a kind of a risk on, risk off, vice versa, or at opposing ends of the technology spectrum on a short term, day to day, week to week. So you've got you've to deal with swings in that sector's performance particularly on a month-to-month basis that you wouldn't typically think of uh, for a sector like that. I think really important, especially for people who are very focused on, I don't mean ESG in a, in a traditional formal way, but I don't like investing in anything fossil fuels. I, I think a country like Norway, which is my sort of home country in terms of uh, background, it's just an example of a a, a country who whose in primary driver of their economy has been about oil, but many of their biggest companies that were traditionally all about fossil fuels, they have been at the forefront of the move to green energy because they're big and they have the resources. They see the writing on the wall. They can transition their business and make the investments. So that's something that I think I know a lot of institutions and foundations and endowments have been having a lot of conversations about how black and white should we be when many of these companies, again, see the writing on the wall and maybe the answer to us moving toward a more uh, green world. You also look, you're right, the earnings profile for energy has been on this wild swing because you had the unbelievable depression in earnings when oil briefly went into negative territory. Then you had the base effects of the massive quadruple digit surge in energy sector earnings last year. Now we're sort of on the other side of that from a base effect standpoint. So that's going to drive people crazy who are fundamentally oriented, but it's an under-owned sector for sure, that there's no way you can quibble with that. And the weight in the indexes is about half of what the earnings weight is. And it's kind of the complete opposite for whether it's the MAG-7 or technology more broadly. Uh, aside from energy, as folks that, that might have fantastic gains in, in some of these individual names or, or maybe allocated towards tech and in, in large cap tech in particular, are there other sectors as we kind of head into the new year that might get a second look? You know, small caps have been horrible. 
affordable, right? Consumer staples and utilities have, have really taken it on the chin over the last few months. Healthcare, not particularly great, like big pharma. Are, are there some like other value sectors starting to kind of pique your interest a little bit that haven't performed well? The whole growth and value discussion, I think, misses something really, really crucially important. But we also think there's opportunities in financials, believe it or not, and in materials. Um, however, and this is a big however, we have been much more factor focused than we have sector focused and think that this is not the type of environment that you can or should make these monolithic overweight, underweight, without understanding that the fundamental differences within each sector are dramatic and that where there has been more consistency in terms of leadership across all 11 sectors is at the factor level. You know, strong return on equity and high interest coverage and positive earnings revisions and lower volatility. And at least the early part of 2024, I think that carries. I think staying focused on factors with kind of a quality wrapper around them factors that have a, a value sort of component to them and a growth. And I mean the characteristics of value and growth, not preconceived notions or index labels. So we continue to be more factor focused. And you were going to sort of amplify one of your thoughts. Growth and value. So, you know, when I hear the debate or somebody, an analyst comes out on one side or another and they sort of leave it as, well, I really like value stocks here. or I'm you know, recommending growth or I always think, well, what are you talking about? Are you talking about the characteristics of growth and value? Are you talking about the preconceived notions of what are growth and value? Like, oh, tech stocks are growth stocks and utility stocks are value stocks. Or are you talking about the indexes labeled as such? And in particular, on that last front, I'm amazed at how many people, their jaws drop, if I can see expressions, if I'm um, not just on a call. And it'll be interesting to see what happens this December. But S&P has growth and value indexes and Russell as growth and value indexes. And they're the two most common sets of growth and value indexes. They're put together a little bit differently. S&P has four, Russell has four. So in S&P's case, they've got S&P pure growth, S&P growth, S&P pure value, S&P value. And they do their rebalancing mid-December every year. Russell has more of a cap orientation. So they've got Russell 1000 growth, Russell 1000 value, and same thing on the Russell 2000. And they do their rebalancing at the end of June every year. The reason why I bring this up is December of last year when S&P did their rebalancing and pure growth, if you're in pure growth as a stock, you don't exist in one of their value indexes. Whereas if you're just in the regular growth index, that stock can also be in the regular value index. And that makes sense because there are stocks that have characteristics of both. But here's what happened on December 19th last year. On December 18th, S&P Pure Growth had all eight of the mega cap eight in it. And tech, which is a subset of that, was 37% of that index. On December 19th, when S&P did their rebalancing, only one of the eight was left in pure growth. The other seven went into a combination of regular growth and regular value. Tech dropped from 37% of that index down to 13% of the index. Energy became the largest weighted sector and healthcare became the second weighted sector. Fast forward to the end of June when Russell did their rebalancing, energy had lost that earnings profile that S&P, when they did their screening, they had energy had last year. So when Russell did its rebalancing, it didn't change that much. Tech stayed a lofty percent. And as a result, there's about a, I think, a 30 percentage point difference between the performance year to date of Russell 1000 growth and S&P pure growth. 
So the real message is just because you see growth as a label on an index doesn't mean it looks the same inside. It depends on rebalance timing. And then the other last point I'd say is value is a funny category, especially at the index level, because it's very clear that you need to have earnings growth in order to screen well, in order to make yourself fall into a growth index. But if you don't have growth, you're automatically put in a value index, even if you're actually overvalued. So utilities last year became as more expensive relative to the S&P than that sector has ever been before. A huge premium in terms of valuation to the S&P. That didn't make them growth stocks. They really weren't value stocks. They just were a bunch of really expensive stocks that happened to live in the value indexes because they'll never be in the growth indexes. So I think of growth and value in characteristics term. I don't think about growth and value based on preconceived notion or make an assumption that if it says it's a growth index, it's basically mostly tech and communication services. In the case of S&P, pure growth, it's mostly energy. There's also a level of rigor to your work that you can ask those questions, whereas opposed to a lot of people that go on and just blurt something like that because it's a Pavlovian response and it's quite frankly a lazy answer. But we're fortunate to have you join us, Lizanne. I tell you, if you're not a Schwab client, but if you're looking to get Lizanne's insights, follow her on Twitter at Lizanne Saunders. The stuff you put out on a daily basis is worth the price of admission. We're honored that you joined us here on the tape. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thanks again to our presenting sponsors, CME Group, iConnections, and FactSet. If you like what you heard, make sure you hit follow and leave us a review. It helps other people find the show, and we also want to hear from you. Email us at contact at riskreversal.com. Derivatives are not suitable for all investors and involve the risk of losing more than the amount originally deposited and any profit you might have made. This communication is not a recommendation or offer to buy, sell, or retain any specific investment or service.